This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. This week on Making Contact. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing. Courageous, committed, and sometimes controversial. On this edition, we celebrate Black History Month through the many voices of African Americans who made history and changed forever American culture, politics, entertainment, and the way we look at our country and ourselves. I'm Tina Rubio, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Over the past two years, as I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences, and to speak from the burnings of my own heart, as I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam, many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. Why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? There are obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. And then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place and it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. I've 
tried to point out the fact over and over again, as I said, that my case is rather insignificant and it only received so much attention because Ronald Reagan saw it necessary to get involved in it. And of course, in the news media, you know, jump at anything that he has to say. But when I say that I'm trying to put this in the context of the general repression that's taking place in this country, I'm talking about the exile of Eldridge Cleaver. I'm talking about the unwarranted imprisonment of Huey Newton, about Bobby Seale, who's been chained and gagged and sentenced to four years for contempt of court. This sounds like something that might have come out of slavery or, or out of the Spanish Inquisition. Angela Davis, known for her ongoing work to combat oppression in the U.S. and abroad. But she first gained nationwide attention when she was linked to the murder of a U.S. judge during an attempted Black Panther prison break. She fled underground, and after 18 months on the run, she was arrested, tried, and eventually acquitted in one of the most famous trials in recent U.S. history. And this isn't even to mention all of the brothers and sisters who fall every day under the bullets of the fascist police forces all over this country in the ghettos and the barrios. This isn't to mention the heroic fight of the Vietnamese people who are fighting for self-determination for freedom. I have continued to say and I will continue to hold the position that if my job at UCLA prevents me from fighting against exploitation, against oppression, against repression, then I have to say later for my job. Black Panther Party calls for a United Nations plebiscite to determine the will of black people as to their national destiny. Huey Newton co-founded the Black Panther Party in 1966. The group, a political force, was both admired and feared for its aggressively militant stance. Black people and oppressed people in general have lost faith in leaders of America, in the government of America, and the very structure of the American government, that is the Constitution, its legal foundation. This loss of faith is based upon the overwhelming evidence that this government will not live according to the Constitution because the Constitution is not designed for its people. For this reason, we assemble a constitutional convention to consider rational and positive alternatives. Alternatives which will place the emphasis on the common man. Alternatives which will bring about a new economic system in which the rewards as well as the work will be equally shared by all people. Socialist framework. Alternatives which will guarantee that within the socialist framework, all groups will be adequately represented in decision-making and administration which affect their lives. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police, and I told him, just call the police. The mother of the modern-day civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, gained nationwide attention when she refused to give up her seat to a white passenger. He then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest. Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama and transportation. I didn't think I was violating any. I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. The time had just come when I had 
been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. They placed me under arrest. And I wasn't afraid. I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. As long as you got a sit-down philosophy, you'll have a sit-down thought pattern. And as long as you think that old sit-down thought, you'll be uh, in some kind of sit-down everywhere. Born Malcolm Little, but known to the world as Malcolm X, a charismatic advocate of black separatism who rejected Martin Luther King Jr.'s policies of nonviolence. It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. That right there castrates you. Right there it brings you down. What, what goes with it? What Think of the image of a, someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. When we look at other parts of this earth upon which we live, we find that black, brown, red, and yellow people in Africa and Asia are getting their independence. They're not getting it by singing, we shall overcome. No, they're getting it through nationalism. It is nationalism that brought about the independence of the people in Asia. Every nation in Asia gained its independence through the philosophy of nationalism. Every nation on the African continent that has gotten its independence brought it about through the philosophy of nationalism. And it will take black nationalism that to bring about the freedom of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country where we have suffered colonialism for the past 400 years. America is just as much a colonial power as England ever was. America is just as much a colonial power as France ever was. In fact, America is more so a colonial power than they, because she's a hypocritical colonial power behind it. I had been to a voter registration workshop, you know, to just training and teaching us how to register, to pass the literacy test. And it was giving us enough training that we could tell other people, you know, how to pass the literacy test. Fannie Lou Hamer, an American civil rights activist. She worked for voter registration for African Americans in the South. And she helped establish the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which successfully challenged the all-white Democratic Party in Mississippi. In 1962, she was violently attacked and imprisoned for violating segregation laws. The beating left Hamer nearly blind in one eye. And after a while, he passed my cell door with this young woman, Miss Annel Ponder. And one of her eyes looked like blood. And her hair was standing up on her head, and her clothes had been torn from the shoulder down to the waist. And then three white men came to my cell. And one of them was a state highway patrolman because he was wearing a little civil plate across his pocket that said John L. Bassinger and he asked me where I was from and I told him I was from Louisville 
And he said, I'm going to check that. And he went out, and I guess he called Ruble. And they did, didn't like me in Ruble because I worked with voter registration there. And when he came back, he said, you damn right. They said, you're from Ruble, all right. And we're going to make you wish you was dead. And they led me out of that cell into another cell. And he gave a Negro prisoner a blackjack. And he ordered me to lay down on a bunk bed. And a Negro prisoner said, do you want me to beat her with this, sir? And he said, you're damn right, because if you don't, you know what I'll do for you. And I laid down on the bunk like he ordered me to do. And the first Negro beat me. He beat me until he was exhausted. And after he beat, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the black jack. And during the time he was beating, I began to work my feet because that was a horrible experience. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro that had beat to sit on my feet while the second one beat. And I just began to scream where I couldn't control it. And then the white man got up and began to beat me in my head. I have a blood clot now and the auto to the left thigh and a permanent kidney injury on the right side from that beat. These are the things that we go through in the state of Mississippi, just trying to be treated like a human being. But still, this is called a part of America. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Muhammad Ali was nicknamed the greatest heavyweight boxing champion fighter of the 1960s and 70s. A fighter of exceptional speed, cunning, and flair. Ali won the world heavyweight title on three separate occasions during his career. Citing his Islamic faith, Ali refused to serve in the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. Once we become followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the flesh and the blood of our people is more important than the white man's money. Money don't mean nothing if you're black for the white man. I don't care if you can buy a $500 house or $500,000 house, you still a nigga. Adam Clayton Powell, a big black man, bumped him off in your face unjustly. Martin Luther King, a big black man, bumped him off in your face unjustly. Muhammad Ali, the biggest black man in all history boxing, bumped me off unjustly in your face. So excuse the expression, money ain't worth a damn thing when it comes to wanting to be a man. And I'm proud to say that I'm the first black man in the history of all America, athlete and entertainer-wise, who gave up all the white man's money, looked the white man in his eye and told him the truth and stayed with his people. And I'm just so happy. I go to bed happy. I wake up happy. And I'll go to jail for 10 years happy. And it'll always be said, there's one that didn't compromise. See, there are only two kind of men, those who compromise and those who take a stand. Those who take a stand are the ones who they write history about. These are the ones movies are made about. John Glenn was the first man to go into space, white man. They go into space every day now. But John Glenn was the one who dared to dare. He conquered it first. John Glenn will go down in history. So they'll have to say that I'm the first black man that took a stand and didn't get weak and go back. Now, many of our people make protests and say they're going to boycott and they're going to do this and do that. And then when the white man put the pressure on, they back up. But I'm one who I hope and pray to Allah 
and his messenger, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, that I'll be one black man that they can look at and say, turn down all $10 million in commercial royalties, turn down the world heavyweight title. Where is he at? There he is, over there, sitting on the garbage can with the wine head. He don't have to be over there. There he is, talking to the prostitute. There he is, picking up the brother out alley, taking him to the Muslim temple. There he is, selling the prostitute a Muslim newspaper. Ain't that something? He really don't have to do it. See, they have to look at me now, greater than just in a boxing ring. Good fight, boy. White man got all the money. Two Negroes cut each other, and he pat him on the back. Good fight, boy. Great fight, boy. Good show, boy. Good dancing, boy. Huh? But they can't look at me like that. See, I get all respect because I follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. You may not like rap around or smoke Carmichael, but they get more respect than the richest Negroes in America. The most white folks loving Negroes in America. When rap brown and smoke Carmichael walking in a tree traffic stop. Rap brown, where? There he is. Smoke Carmichael, where? White folks jumping out of windows looking at him, wanting to touch him. They admire warriors because they are warriors. They believe in dying and fighting for what they believe. They giving up $90 million a day in Vietnam in the guts of the children for a principle. They died and fought the Indians. Money don't mean nothing when your people are free and hungry and catching hell. So all of these so-called Negroes listen to this show. I hope you learned something from this. Damn some money when it comes to your mama's freedom. You're so quick to go to Vietnam and fight and shoot and kill somebody you don't know, fighting so they can be free, and you come home and you get your head busted. So if I gotta die, if I gotta sacrifice, if I gotta suffer, let it be for my black brothers and sisters. Let it be for my mama and not somebody 10,000 miles from here. So when you understand what I'm saying, when you weigh it out, if it means money or Tom, damn the money. We'll have more in a few moments. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. You can also download programs or get our podcast at radioproject.org. James Baldwin established his reputation with his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, an autobiographical tale of growing up in Harlem. He became one of the leading African-American authors of his generation, known for novels and essays that tackled black-white and hetero-homosexual relationships. Here he speaks at Oakland, California's Castlemont High School in June 1963. I think the other reason, and perhaps the most important reason, that I'm throwing the suggestions out to you tonight, is that in this country, every black man born in this country, until this present moment, is born into a country which assures him, in as many ways as it can find, that he is not worth the dirt he walks on. Every Negro boy and every Negro girl born in this country until this present moment undergoes the agony of trying to find in the body politic, in the body social, outside himself, herself, some image of himself or herself which is not demeaning. Now many indeed have survived and at an incalculable cost. And many more have perished. 
and are perishing every day. If you tell a child and do your best to prove to the child that he is not worth life, it is entirely possible that sooner or later the child begins to believe it. Darkies all wake on the Mississippi. Darkies all wake while the white folks play. Pulling them bolts from the dawn to sunset. Getting no rest till the judgment day. Paul Robeson, an athlete, writer, and civil rights activist, found fame as an actor and concert singer with his fine bass baritone voice. Robeson was the first to bring spirituals to the concert stage. Let me go away from the Mississippi, let me go away from the white man boss. Show me that stream called the River Jordan, that's the old stream that I long to cross. My earliest serious poem to be published was a poem called The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I wrote this poem when I was 18, wrote it on a train going to Mexico just after I'd graduated from high school. Langston Hughes, a great American poet, novelist, and playwright. He wrote more than three dozen books during his life and is best known for his work during the Harlem Renaissance. Here he recites The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans. And I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Hers was the booming voice that thundered across the nation, inspiring political leaders to greater vision, championing the underdog, and fighting for the truth. Barbara Jordan was the first African-American woman ever elected to Congress from a southern state. And on July 12, 1976, she became the first African-American woman to ever deliver a keynote speech at the Democratic National Convention. The citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more than a recital of problems. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. We are a people in search of a national community. We are a people trying not only to solve the problems of the present, unemployment, inflation, but we are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. 
We are attempting to fulfill our national purpose to create and sustain a society in which all of us are equal. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Democrat Barack Obama, a U.S. Senator from Illinois, shot to national fame after delivering the keynote speech in support of John Kerry at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. The speech established Obama as a rising star in the party, and just recently, he announced his candidacy for the presidential election in 2008. The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats, but I've got news for them too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and there are patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. In the end, do we participate in a politics of cynicism, or do we participate in a politics of hope? I'm not talking about blind optimism here, the almost willful ignorance that thinks unemployment will go away if we just don't think about it, or healthcare crisis will solve itself if we just ignore it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more substantial. It's the hope of slaves sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. The hope of immigrants setting out for distant shores. The hope of a young naval lieutenant bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta. The hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. The Godfather of Soul, a successful businessman and an American icon recognized as one of the most influential figures in 20th century pop culture. You know, all the work I did was for the other man. Now we demand a chance to do things for ourselves. We're tired of beating our head against the wall and working with someone else. Say it loud.
That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to Dan Turner and Ronald Rucker. Our theme music is by the Charlie Hunter Trio. For a CD copy of program number 0507, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or go to radioproject.org. Lisa Redman is our Executive Director, Dorian Taylor Communications Manager, Emily Pope Associate Producer, Philip Babbage Mixing Engineer, Alexis McCrimmon Intern, and I'm your host and senior producer, Tina Rubio. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.